0: So I said, in that case, can I take it with me? So this is now sitting on a shelf in my study, um, because this was an important series for me when I started studying uh, international law. That would have been in 1982. This was provided a wealth of information. Every time you came across something that looked like a term of art in international law, and you had no clue what it meant, undoubtedly the Max Planck Encyclopedia would give you an answer or it would lead you on a trail to further research. So that was the one reason. The other reason is, and this is also from my own bookshelves, um, I'm part of the editorial board of the ICRC revised commentaries on the Geneva Conventions. On the left-hand side you see Uh, the commentaries that have appeared so far, three commentaries on the conventions and one big red book which provides commentaries on protocol one and protocol two. On the right hand side you see the one book which is the commentary on the Geneva, the first Geneva Convention. I have not fiddled with the size but you can already see that uh, the commentary on the first Geneva Convention is a big book. being a member of the editorial committee I get the hardback version but it is also available on internet which weighs a little less. Now, the subtitle of what I wanted to speak to you about was how we write them and how we use them. How we write travaux, commentaries and encyclopedias. I just use that abbreviation for now. now. Somehow, it starts with somebody having a plan to do this. We need a new project that is going to lead to the publication of the Travaux Préparatoire on a particular convention. We need a commentary on a particular treaty. Or even we need an encyclopedia. So there is this sentiment somewhere, sentiment and energy Uh, that essentially can be summarized as we really need this and also quite crucially someone has been able to persuade a publisher that this is not going to be just a hobby horse but that this this is going to be a project that we will be able to share with everybody across the world and the people at the origin of the plan presumably have been quite persuasive, and they've persuaded the publisher, that there is actually a market for such a publication. Everybody has been waiting for this publication. Maybe sometimes it's slightly different, I would say that the ICRC and the commentaries to the Geneva Conventions, undoubtedly there is a market for that, and I do hope there is a market for the revised commentaries as well, but the ICRC of course has a message to transmit, so there is also, I would say, a push from within the organisation to do something like that. It's a big job, um, it was a big job already in the uh, early 1950s, early 1950s, something like that, 1950s when the first version of the commentaries was published, and it is, I think, an even, even bigger job now. now. So how do we write? So assuming that there is someone or there is a core group who are the editors, they are going to steal the project, Uh, they find this publisher and then they start requesting people to contribute. Now I've put down beware of your own vanity here, you may be requested to contribute to a commentary or to an encyclopedia and you're thinking, ah, wonderful, at last they've seen that I am the specialist in this subject. I'm going to do this. But then it's not like writing an article, it's not like writing your own views on a particular subject. It is not about me ha- making a point about something that no one else has written about so far, which is what normally drives us when we write articles. We think, everybody has missed the point, I'm going to clarify something that's been overlooked or I have an analysis that is really contributing to the discussion so I should be sharing this uh, with the whole world. So there's going to be an issue about what the author's instructions are from the, say, the central editorial body, the editors who had the original plan the author's instructions tell you what to do, and the role of the author who finds herself or himself somewhat limited in what you can write. They will tell you something about what is relevant and what is not relevant. For instance, one of the instructions when we are working on the revised commentaries to the Geneva Conventions is examples preceding The Second World War, maybe not, no longer relevant. Try and focus on the 1949 version of the Geneva Conventions. Don't get into too much detail about the historic development. It's a commentary on the commentaries as they are functioning at this point in time. So you will see editorial boards trying to sort of give you parameters, give you a framework within which your contribution has to stay. They will tell you something about the size of your contribution, the scope of it, Um, keep it legal, don't get into the international politics at the time, things like that. And so you will very often find that the editorial board has quite a clear Role in shaping the end product, even though they are relying on the contributions of many, uh, of a very varied, uh, broad group of uh, of authors. Now, maybe let's look at the travaux préparatoires. I hope I thought this was a lovely la- layout for the slide, but I'm not sure that it is particularly helpful for you when you're looking at it. The travaux préparatoires. I think the understanding is they give an overview of the different stages in the development of a treaty text. So assuming that negotiations take five or six rounds particularly multilateral negotiations, a series of rounds and in that process the text of the Convention, the text of the treaty, gets, becomes established the text goes through various versions and these versions would sometimes have specific titles uh, the chairman's proposal with a date or indeed um, in the um, uh, in in the the, um, uh, in the negotiations of uh, the um, uh, of the law of the sea convention at one point there was a paper that was called the boat paper because it had had a picture of a boat on the front, then in the Straling Stocks Convention we had the fish paper which had, surprisingly, a picture of a fish on the front page, irrespective of how you call them there will be the official texts of the treaty as it is somewhere in the process and if you compare all those texts, texts, you see the, the way in which the treaty text changes until it reaches the final text on which we can all agree maybe not wholeheartedly, but in the end we will find some sort of consensus agreement on, okay, this is the text that we can all live with. That is not enough, but that's not the standard uh, idea about what travaux are. Of course you have these various texts, but you also have, or you used to have, I'll get to that in a moment, you have the discussions that took place in the negotiations, and the discussions that clarify what went on, the reflection that went on between the first version of the text and the second version of the text where if you just compare the text, you see that the provisions have been changed not just the editing, but they may have, some articles may have shifted to a different part, and you see that uh, you you can see the text building as you go through the different versions of the text. But what is missing, if you only compare those versions, is why did that happen? What made the negotiating states change a text? Or what was the, the bargaining that went on? If you drop this idea, we will not insist on that idea. So the whole negotiation, the whole debate is missing unless, as things were, um, you have captured the discussions that took place during the negotiations. Now, travaux préparatoires are not easy to read. The uh, the, the page uh, in the background is taken mm-hmm. from Marc Bossuet's travaux the, préparatoires on the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which was published, I believe, uh, somewhere in the 1980s. And at that point in time, uh, the, the thinking was in part that if we do different developments in the text, in different typeface, that's going to be clear to everybody. <laughs> Warning, it's not. And the idea is also that there is a relation between what is on the left-hand column and the right-hand column. I, I guess the left-hand column is what was finally decided and then on the right hand you see all the in-between steps now this was my first encounter uh, with Travaux Préparatoires and I thought, oh please don't, this is really terrible <laughs> it's very hard to follow. Gradually the idea started to change so you might have this, this was an attempt to clarify the result in the light of the debate that went on, then there were other, there are other attempts, uh, other uh, organisational uh, approaches. So what we do is we give an overview as to what happened each each session that the delegation spoke about this particular treaty, or we can do it by article. But it moved even further, and I think today we see versions of travaux préparatoires that are quite different. If you compare, it, was, I was looking for a good comparison, and I'll tell you the bad one, but I think the good one is imagine that you're looking at a movie being made, and the movie initially, you have these endless series of trying to get the shot right, trying to get the storyline organized, and you end up with a lot of film reels that are essentially the uncut version of the treaty, the uncut version of what is being made. I think we have now moved to something which is more of an edited version of travaux. I would say that's the director's cut, the choice that the editor of the travaux has made of what is or is not relevant. I'll show you in a minute. The origin is, of course, that these books seek to facilitate your work, when you want to look at the drafting history, as compared to, uh, I'm I'm inclined to say, as compared to what we did in the old days, which was going back to all the documents that were used in the negotiations. The various texts, the various versions of articles that were circulated, but also the summary records that would lay down exactly what the delegate of faraway land thought what the delegate of country A, B and C thought and um, that's what I used when I did my own PhD we were looking at original text, there was nothing else the UN Depository Library was a collection of boxes with documents and they came with a librarian who was particularly strict saying Don't mess up the order of the documents. Don't put them in the wrong box. If you would put a document in the wrong box, the odds were that it was never found again. And here's another sad message about producing travaux préparatoires. It doesn't bring eternal glory. It is extremely helpful if they are well done, but it's not going to get you into international law heaven very helpful but you know it's it's a tool it's hardly more than that now something i think happened and that that would have been sort of starting from the year 2000 onwards and i think it's important to keep that in mind um increasingly there is an absence of records of debates within the United Nations. I've done a lot of work in the UN, so my examples tend to come from the UN. And there is an absence of records of the drafting work. So it used to be that the UN produced summary records of discussions, including the discussions that would lead to the formulation uh, of a new treaty, but they don't anymore. The reason for that is that this was too much of a burden on the budget. Keep in mind, the UN works in six languages so there was an obligation to produce everything in six languages. Now, the meeting takes place in six languages so if you want to follow what is being said in French, it gets translated into Arabic, gets translated into English, Spanish, Russian, and I'm missing one I guess, Um, anyway, a Chinese is the one I was missing. So it is going to be uh, interpreted as you speak, but doing all the papers that are produced by a particular conference in six languages is hugely expensive. Now, and so ways are found to move to informal sessions because informal sessions do not carry the obligations of translating everything, Um, but it means that records of actually what was said, why Article 27, Paragraph 3 looked like this in the second session and looked quite differently in the next session, we can only tell if the participants, have written about it. And not every diplomat sits down afterwards and starts discussing what we did and why we did it. Now, um, there are strange ways (coughs) of coping with that. Um, For instance, the International Seabed Authority, which does not produce summary records either, they have taken up uh, a quite strange practice of using their press releases to highlight um, what I would call turning points in the bis- discussions. So their press releases, which in themselves are not an, o- an official document, and they're not summary records, they are <coughs> for the press and the general public. The press releases particularly of crucial debates would highlight if a particular dis- delegation said something that was of influence in the debate, not everybody who then said "Yes we agree with Far Wayland, that's perhaps less relevant but if Far Wayland came up with a proposal to change something in the mining code it would be it would be listed in the press release that is quite unusual and even worse in the um, negotiations about marine biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction which took place initially in a working group of the General Assembly and are now at the stage of a diplomatic conference. No summary records. But here this has sort of become a bit outsourced. There is now a NGO reporting on what happens in, the, in this diplomatic conf- conference under the umbrella of the General Assembly and they produce Earth Negotiations Bulletin, which I think is an excellent publication. But it is the main publication which continues to follow what happens in the BBNJ negotiations. And every day they will produce one issue and it will of course always also be a summary highlighting the main comments during the negotiation. They're not summary records but they are some kind of record. Very unusual that this reporting is, in a way, outsourced uh, to an NGO. Sometimes there are (coughs) quite um, mundane reasons why things (coughs) change in international organisations. So, um, as I I indicated in in the, the heading of this slide, The UN is rapidly moving away from anything that could be a paper source, so the UN Depository Library I think, I don't know if they have really survived because everything is on the internet. The big boxes, all the documents that were shipped from New York and from Geneva are no longer there because the UN uh, is moving uh, also rapidly towards a paperless uh, system. Um, What was of decisive importance, and it is really very odd, but um, it it, it happened during International Law Week in 2012, Uh, Hurricane Sandy took place. Remember Hurricane Sandy? New York was flooded and and, uh, East River also flooded uh, the site of the UN. Not just the tip of Manhattan, but also the site of the UN. It was International Law Week. So, all the legal advisors were in New York, sitting in their hotel room for three days because the UN was closed. Um, Famously, Hurricane Sandy flooded the Security Council room, which could not be used. Shock, horror. The Security Council is meeting somewhere else. But it also flooded the printers. Aha, so anyone in the UN system who wanted to move away from paper as a very expensive means of transmitting the work of the UN, thought, ah, this is our chance. (laughs) We're not going to reconstruct the printers as it used to be. So from then on onwards, this is only caused by a hurricane, but from then on onwards, hardly anything appears in writing anymore. Papers that are used in the conference room, Draft resolutions, they go on paper because it's helpful to have them on paper before you. You can make notes. But big reports or anything like that, not on paper anymore. Instead, we now have the Paper Smart System, which is a sort of an in house system. I'm not sure if you can log in from, um, to the system uh, from here, but within the UN building, you can log into the Paper Smart System you look for the meeting you're following, and you will then find all the documents, including everybody's statements. So statements are no longer uh, handed out in the room either. So um, even if we we had not thought about this before, reporting quite clearly depends on the availability of funding. That is understandable. It also goes to the issue of whether or not you actually need six languages in the UN, but that's not open for debate. It's an understandable development, but also it may make it quite difficult. If you look at Article 32 of the Vienna Convention, reports of the drafting of treaties as a secondary means of interpretation. Now this may not be a major problem when you look at older treaties, but imagine imagine that we will have uh, an implementing agreement on marine biodiversity. Does that mean that we then refer to Earth Negotiations Bulletin as the means of interpretation that Article 32 of the Vienna Convention refers to? Let me see, just briefly. Recourse maybe this is Article 32. Recourse maybe had to supplementary means of interpretation, including the preparatory work of the treaty and the circumstances of its conclusion. Interesting. What does this mean in a time when we don't have summary records anymore? Okay, I think this sli- this slide is a, it's a it's, it's actually in the wrong place. Um, this is what I going back to my comparison with the movie, from the uncut reels, travaux, the plain travaux, to the editor's travaux, the edited travaux, the director's cut. This is um, the Virginia commentary on the Law of the Sea Convention, and here you see an example of uh, a section which really goes to the travaux of the Law of the Sea Convention. You find that the authors are now describing what took place. At the third session, this and that happened, if you want to check it, go to source 25. That's different already from moving from the really basic material to writing the commentary. So in the process, from travaux to commentary, the content gets wrapped and embellished and selected, presumably, by the authors who are writing this. they highlight developments, and they highlight the developments that they think are important. I apologize that this is at the wrong place. Now onto commentaries. Commentaries tend to follow the articles of the treaty. So you'll have a few pages on Article 1, Article 27, Article etc. Mostly they are article by article but sometimes you find that they are thematic. In the Pictet commentaries, and we are currently working on Geneva, on the third Geneva Conventions, um, there is a section on the escape of prisoners of war, but Pictet apparently thought, Pictet and friends by the way, we call this the Pictet commentaries but he didn't do that all on his own. Um, The section on the escape of prisoners of war is four or five articles. Picter lumps them all together and describes them in not more than five pages. In the meantime, every article gets five pages at least. But apparently, for those who were doing the commentaries, there was nothing, nothing that really led to the need to discuss every article individually. Now here again, with commentaries, there are instructions from the editorial board, how to structure your contribution. It's helpful if the articles, the description of the articles, have a sort of a similar layout, a similar structure. What to include or what not to include. Do you talk about case law? Do you talk about relevant national law? And of course, a style guide. Uh, and normally also instructions with respect to the footnotes. And that's also because, of course, the editors don't want to start correcting everybody's footnotes. If you're doing a large project, you don't want to do that. Sometimes, you find commentaries include a reference to travaux, not always. Sometimes, they include references to case law, but not always, and not necessarily in a systematic manner what I found interesting in working on the commentaries to the Geneva Conventions is that um, we are doing the revised commentaries in English, the original commentaries were done in French, the conventions were negotiated in French, and it's fair to say that um, the two language versions, although they are both official, do not track very well. So there have been corrections where the English text was really different from the French text and if you again go to the detail, and of course when you do a commentary you are really looking at the detail, there are language issues not just with respect to the conventions themselves and clearly, I don't want to go on about um, differences between English as a legal language and French as a legal language, that's a well-known fact, but um, if you are looking in greater detail at at the the conventions and you're looking again at the commentaries, it's striking that you find these language differences and it's something you will have to address. You have to say something about it, you can't say everywhere, oops this was a translation error, is perhaps not a great idea, but um, you have to make sure that in the commentary that you write, um, you also maintain the unity of the material norm. And if there is a disparity there, it sometimes uh, it takes very precise drafting to get that right. With respect to commentaries, I note that there are systems in which more formalized, official commentaries are produced. I believe that the Council of Europe does that. I'm not sure if they do it for every treaty they produce, but they do, at times, produce their own commentary to the treaty that they have created. I'm not sure if it's for every treaty, so I need to look into, in, into that in greater detail. But sometimes, also, the UN does it. For instance, the UN Drugs Convention, there is a commentary which is the official commentary. For many other conventions, there is not an official commentary. So, these official commentaries would be written after the conclusion uh, of the text, and then uh, the secretariat and the chair and a number of other people who have been very engaged in negotiations will start writing that commentary, but the commentary is somehow adopted unless it says this is the unofficial commentary. Um, Now that may give you some sort of solid ground in the sense of if it's officially adopted, well then apparently that is what we all think and that tells us how to understand uh, this particular treaty. It has an official commentary going with it. Maybe just briefly about the ICRC commentaries. I um, trust you've all had a look at the new commentaries on the website and if not you'll do that this afternoon no doubt um, the Pictet commentaries date from the 1950s and I think the final ones were sort of early 1960s no need to say that armed conflict has changed quite a bit since 1949 when the Red Cross conventions uh, were established uh, is also I think no need to explain why we are not starting to amend the Red Cross uh, Conventions. would not be a good idea at this point in time. But it is quite clear that the old commentaries have become somewhat outdated. They're talking about a war that is no longer there. Of course, the majority of wars now are non-international armed conflict. So um, it was felt necessary. Also, I think in the In the wake of the customary law law study that the ICRC undertook, it was felt necessary to have another look at the commentaries. Now this is a huge project and I am in awe for all the efforts that the ICRC is making. Um, They set up quite a complex organisation with a multitude of authors, with peer reviewers from all across the world and an editorial committee that has to keep reading and reading. I had never thought that I would read uh, a whole book of, of commentaries, but I've done two now, so uh, you learn about that uh, as, as, uh, um, as things go. You know, there are, of course, here, and, and this is, I think, quite um, uh, quite particular to the Red Cross Conventions, there are lots of debates, lots of contemporary debates about where does IHL sit? Where does IHL sit with respect to international criminal law? So how much international criminal law are you drawing into your commentary, for instance on the grave breaches but also on particular uh, uh, substantive norms that you're discussing? How much of the interpretation of the norm by an outside body such as Yugoslavia Tribunal, such as the International Criminal Court. Are you going to reflect in the commentaries? You're not writing a commentary about international criminal law, but at the same time you don't want people to say, well, you made your commentary on an island because meanwhile something else was happening in the tribunals. There's another debate about where this international humanitarian law sits Uh, in relation to human rights law, and the case law of the various human rights courts, who have many of them, not just uh, Strasbourg, but also the Inter-American Court addressed various elements, mostly in the field of uh, GC4, but sometimes also uh, related to prisoners of war, have addressed issues related to IHL. So these are all um, uh, matters you need to think about knowing particularly the, the debate about uh, human rights law and humanitarian law is not an easy debate there are some positions have been taken and it's an ongoing debate it's not easy but you have to deal with that when you uh, work on a subject like that now the final one in my list is the Encyclopedia. Remember my uh, first slide about the Max Planck Encyclopedia? I thought it was a wonderful tool. However, is it an objective tool? Is it an impartial tool? That's something you find out. I wonder if you find that out when you first start using that tool as you start studying international law. I guess not. I guess that only by the time you are more advanced in your studies, you read things and you're thinking um, well that's one way of looking at it, but there are other ways. So, someone sets a list of entries, lemmas, keywords. The current Marx-Planck encyclopedia on uh, public international law tells you on the website that they have 1,700 entries. So I was thinking you might as well read them all and you don't need a handbook anymore because it's about just about everything. And I would suspect they're still growing. The law changes, new problems arise, so presumably new lemmas arise as well, new entries arise. Here again, the authors work to instructions of the editorial board. This is how we want to see your piece. This is um, the types of headings you use. This is what you can include. You'll get a style guide. You'll get some comments as to not include too many footnotes because that's not what encyclopedias are about. Uh, But it is very much about ambition. It's about ambition of the editors of the encyclopedia. a new encyclopedia is, is uh, starting, uh, which is the Encyclopedia of International Procedural Law. I think that's the title, which is co- abbreviated as APRO. This is being prepared by the Max Planck Institute in Luxembourg, which is the Institute for International Procedural Law or something. Um, and they start out, they have this, this wonderful leaflet with all sorts of graphs as to how everything is related, and they're aiming for thousand entries. I'm writing a few, but I find it is... It is um, it's hard to write an encyclopedic entry, because, as I said, it's not your own thinking. You're supposed to present facts and to be very transparent, not add any specific reflections or... So it's it's sort of the idea is to be objective. However, as you go along, you find that sometimes you refer to the encyclopedia and you find partial entries or incorrect entries uh, or authors who are presenting a personal point of view. Uh, I have on various occasions found entries in the Max Planck uh, Encyclopedia, the main one, I mean, um, where somebody was writing something about the Netherlands, where I thought, ah, that's just (laughs) not fair! You misunderstood why we did this! Um, And uh, it turned out that the person who was writing uh, for, for various reasons was sitting on the other side, Um, But then, this is also, uh, it's a a bit uncomfortable, because you can say, well, uh, write a nice letter to the editor and say, excuse us, but we think this needs to be um, corrected. (coughs) What the Enthiopeia says now is a bit too partial, or at least you should add a paragraph on our view. Um, But then." It never gets corrected. We once did this. We were extremely upset about uh, somebody not referring to a particular court case saying, the United Kingdom and the Netherlands said this and that and they were wrong, yadda Not only were we um, were we validated in our approach by, by the church, but the point was it stayed there for a very long time. It was never corrected, of course. It's still sitting there. So with the authority that is somehow attributed to those reference works including encyclopedias it is still sitting there and that goes to another issue and I think that is an issue that is increasing in scope the bigger the encyclopedia gets the more of a management headache it becomes what starts out as a great plan we should have this, in the end will require quite a lot of people to run it and some sort of a process to update. What was true in 2013 probably needs to be checked again by now. They might then find my letter saying you need to update this because it's incorrect, who knows? So, the work process for those huge big projects, and that goes to I think the Max Planck Encyclopedia, the new procedural law Encyclopedia, but certainly also the ICRC commentaries, the work process is an issue in itself. And I'm not sure if lawyers are necessarily the best process managers, but that is, uh, that's another matter. But it, it, becomes, um, it, it becomes something that you have to take into account as you, as you go along. If your aim is only to produce a series in book form, that's sort of done it, it's published, let's all go for a drink and that's it. By the time you turn it into a um, digital project, uh, similarly for instance the customary law study of the ICRC where there is also an ambition to keep updating, it is high maintenance because the law doesn't stop. So, yes, we do take all these reference works for granted in a way because they help us out Uh, very easy to quickly check Uh, someone mentions a court case and you just can't remember what the case was about Uh, or uh, in in the case that we're dealing with in in Hamburg somebody referred to a court case that I had truly never heard of the good news was neither had the Max Planck (laughs) Encyclopedia but um, we assume We assume that the information is correct and to a certain extent impartial. We we assume that it's up to date. Now these days people do add dates to what they submit. Um, They are wonderful tools, but there are quite some issues behind the curtain or behind the scenes to do with impartiality, maybe not necessarily guaranteed? Um, Are they proper reflection of what actually went on? Are the choices made in the director's cut commentary version, would they be your choices? Do they perhaps, I think that's my last last slide, do these wonderful have all commentaries and encyclopedias as much as we need them, as much as I admire those who work on them, do they perhaps make us slightly lazy? Because we don't go back to the boxes with the documents. The boxes with the documents might not be there anymore, by the way. But if the commentary tells you, as can be found in the summary records of the negotiations, da, are you going to check it yourself? or are you going to say, it's in the summary records because someone said it in the commentary. So um, Some questions for discussion. For instance, do we think reference works uh, are acceptable as footnotes? Are they acceptable in pleadings? Are they acceptable as footnotes? Maybe in a, a paper by a bachelor student? What about your personal preferences? Um, I, t- I tried, I, I spoke about this subject at a, at a lunch at my university last week. And For instance, if you look at commentaries, there are, I think, four major commentaries on the ICC statute. There is the Cassese-Gaeta um, commentary. There is Triefferer. There is, I think, Shabas. And there is Stein, so, and they're all big. Uh, some of them are three, three volumes, two volumes, really big. Um, a few people at the table, and I'm, I just put it in gray because I'm not certain about this, but I'd like to, to hear your uh, your commentaries. Commentaries being the obvious word. Um, some people around the table suggested, well, give me a German commentary anytime. It is thorough. It gives you all the background. It gives you all the case law. So I said, "Well, what's, why, why this emphasis on?" Well, they were much better than British commentaries. I'm sorry to reflect this. Um, the British ones would never take sides. The German commentaries would put forward a well-considered opinion. And according to the people at lunch, we wanted to have an opinion. We just didn't have, want to have this. Well, a little bit of this and that. However, something else which apparently takes place mostly in journal commentaries is what we ended up calling, there is a competition of commentaries. So you write a commentary and in the process you start making comments about other commentaries who obviously have got it wrong. <coughs> so, what about it? What are your personal preferences? How often do you use all of this? Do you ever go back to the original papers of the negotiations when you're working on a particular treaty. I'll leave it at that. This is as far as I'm concerned, is the start of our discussion and I really look forward to to your views and to your comments. Thank you. (laughs)